the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. It's four o'clock. So this must be the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is, as you know, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you need to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free and you'll be safe. Welcome to the show. It's a special show today. We are broadcasting from Camp Buckner in Burnett, Texas, and I have the pleasure of having Pastor Gino Geraci with me today. He is the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel of South Denver. He, like me, is also a host of a radio program on a sister station in Denver here, one of the Salem programs. Dino, your program is two hours. Yes, it's called Crosswalk with Gino Geraci, and it's on from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the Denver, Colorado Springs area in the Front Range of Colorado. And on our the sister station that we have, um, it's called KRKS in, uh, in Denver. And... Who's doing the program for you today? You know what? One of two things. They either have somebody filling in for me or they have what's called B-O-G, best of Gino. But, you know, the slim pickings. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty prideful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's why the best of, yeah. they, they just sort of plug something in and, and yeah. So I just call it a rebroadcast. Yeah, it's a rebroadcast. <laughs> well, welcome. I'm, you've been great here at the retreat so far. We've still got another night tonight yes. and day tomorrow. And uh, you came down to be with us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I was the pastor of Calvary South Denver for many, many years. We planted our church by Columbine High School um, many years ago. And um, I have been on the radio for more than 20 years. And um, I'm now on the board of directors of one of the largest online Bible ministries. It's called gotquestions.org. And maybe some of you who are listening right now, you've used gotquestions.org for any number of reasons. And um, I also have a a 501c3, which is a nonprofit that's called Scripture Says. And Scripture Says is uh, a ministry that's devoted to trying to evaluate, well, quite frankly, everything in light of what the Bible says. So we ask and we try to find answers to people's questions. And so like you, I've devoted the vast majority of my adult life to teaching the Bible, but trying to provide honest biblical answers to what I call the, the most important questions. Got, got questions is a, a, a treasure of resources. So I can recommend it to anybody who has some questions. 
340-9585. If you have any live calls or questions, we're going to have questions mm-hmm. from the audience here. We're also going to have some questions that have been submitted to us, but we will be happy to take your phone calls. So here is the first question that's come in. It says in Revelation twenty one twenty five, it says, its gates shall not be shut at all day by day. There shall be no night there. And the question is, why are the gates of the new heaven open at all times? Do you want to take that? Sure. In Revelation 21, 25, where it says, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. That particular thing reminds us that the presence of God provides the light. Remember, the Bible says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And why are the gates of the new heaven open at all times? Because guess what? There is freedom. You get to come and go. And again, there's no danger of anything wicked or weird entering those gates. So it isn't like the Wizard of Oz where you remember that guy was standing at the gate and, you know, letting people in or keeping people out. Um, The Bible makes it abundantly clear. I'll just be as blunt as I can. No one will be in heaven accidentally. Everyone who's there will be there because they belong there. And no one will be excluded accidentally. And so that's part of the promise. You know, Gina, you and I are old enough to remember when we didn't lock our doors. Right. Um, you'd leave the keys to the car in mm-hmm. the ignition while you parked in the street or in the driveway overnight. And, and heaven is going to be like that in the sense that there's no danger. There's no possibility of falling away. Right. I love the fact that Jesus is the light. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting in the book of Genesis, the creation account, there was light before the sun, the moon, and the stars exactly. were created. And people say, well, how could that be? That's just got to be an error. No, Jesus was the light then, and he will be the light again. Exactly. And, and again, I have a, a strong suspicion that light isn't just electrons and photons. It isn't just matter and energy, if you will. But there is a kind of a supernatural light um, that this light isn't just, if I can be so bold, it isn't just light. It becomes an expression and an attribute of God that is undiminished and unhindered. You know, the Bible makes it abundantly clear on a number of occasions where God is speaking to Moses and he says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to turn around and go backwards because if you saw me, you would be consumed. Well, in a very real way, we will see the manifestation, if you will, of our eternal Savior. I'm convinced that when the Bible says no one has seen God at any time, that it really means it. No one has ever seen God. And what's called the plenary or full effulgence of the majestic being. But, but for reasons that become clear in the New Testament, our Savior, Jesus, God who becomes a human being, one person with two natures, that we will be able to interact with the true and the living God throughout eternity. But in a very re- real sense, the Father remains invisible, and so does the Spirit. Yeah. You know, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Uh-huh. In the year King Uzziah died, I uh-huh. saw the Lord. Well, John chapter 12 tells us that he saw Jesus. Uh-huh. And, and every manifestation of God that, that has been physical has been Jesus. I think one of the great questions ever asked in all the Bible, and it was, it was a statement, but it was really a question. It was Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. Uh-huh. I mean, that's what, that's, I, I want the people here at Calvary Chapel, I want them to be men and women who are so bold that they'll say, okay, Jesus, show me your glory. Yeah. And we can experience it every day. It's different, but we can experience it every day. And I love that word, glory. Yeah. That word, to me, is like a box, and it contains all of the attributes of God. Glory is a word that express, expresses the sum and the substance of the accumulation of everything that God is. If you, if you have ever done a, a biblical study on the attributes of God, and one is called aseity, his self-existence, his... his um, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. If you take all of the attributes of God and you put them in this box marked glory, glory is the word that describes the sum and the substance of all of his attributes. And when we, we, we think about that personally in a New Testament construct, 
Christ in us, the hope of glory. Yes. It's just, that's available to us every single day. It's an amazing thing. Another question. Is it possible that the spirit of Baal and or Chumash, yeah, Chumash or Chumash. Chumash are heavily influencing the abortion atrocity in industry? What an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, what an interesting question, because in the ancient world, when we talk about the spirit of Baal, well, Baal was a false Canaanite god, and so was Chemosh or Chemosh. Chemosh was the, the, the deity that the, that the apostate people would offer the sacrifices of their children. There was a brazen altar, and they would take their children, and they would place it on a burning altar as if that would satisfy this malignant, wicked deity to somehow act in a particular way. Well, Paul in the New Testament reminds us that there's really no such thing. Yeah. There's no such thing as Baal or Chemosh. There's, there's no, there's no uh, false in the sense of there, there's no God that stands in opposition or um, it, different from the true and the living God. Are there supernatural beings, demonic beings, that impersonate the deities of old? And I think that the answer is yes. So when, when you say, is it possible that the spirit of Baal or Chemosh, I would, I would press it that, pre- preface that by saying, there are supernatural spirits that have always, in a most malignant way, worked to kill children and obliterate humanity as the image of God. So if you're asking and answering the question, does the abortion atrocity um, represent a worldly commitment to the destruction of human life and the sanctity of life? The answer is yes. Is there a supernatural component? I'm going to suggest to you that there is a supernatural component. Satan and his demons have always hated humanity. And so there's a supernatural effort. Uh, Satan has always opposed God's plans and purposes. God's plans and purposes have been to save humanity. Satan's plans and purposes is to destroy humanity. And so, yeah, I think that the uh, abortion industry is a wicked reflection of a supernatural commitment that human beings aren't valuable and nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says human life matters. And, and Satan, he's got nothing new up his sleeve. He's always tried to kill babies. Yes. From the beginning, from, from Moses to, to the New Testament, to get rid of any possibility of the Messiah, the deliverer, the real deliverer coming. That's always been the case. Right. right. And this Chemosh worship, by the way, we have an article at gotquestions.org. Who was Chemosh? And he was the god of the Moabites. And we have some, some scripture referencing and unfortunately, he's called the abomination of Moab in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 17. And unfortunately, Chemosh worship was introduced into the Israelite culture by King Solomon, who had wives from other cultures who turned his heart to other gods. And so Chemosh was one of those gods worshipped by Solomon's wives, and the cult of Chemosh was eventually destroyed in Judah by King Josiah, you know, would to God, would to God that our culture in one voice, I know Texas has made a very conscientious effort to try and say, you know what, we think it's a bad idea to chop babies up. Can you, can you imagine that? that? That wouldn't even have been a debatable question 50 the, years ago. The, the very fact that if I, if I described and I said to you, this worship of Moloch and, and Chemosh, where you take a living baby and you put it on a burning iron and fry the baby, who in their right mind thinks that that's a good idea? It is wicked and it is perverse. So thank you, caller. Yeah, and, and we just do this with technology. Matt, you've got a question from the audience? Oh, let's, before you, Matt, we've got uh, on line one, we've got Coach from Bernie. Coach, you're on the air. Thank you for calling. Pastor Ron, I just wanted to, say uh, happy belated anniversary and yes just, happy uh, anniversary Ron. So you know I, I just love you guys so much and i try to listen to you nearly every day uh, but i'm not going to be able to make it to the men's retreat so i want to mm. just say that i 
pray that the Lord blesses the guys that are there and that there are many lives that will be changed for the glory of God. And again, I love you guys, and I sure miss Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. (laughs) Coach, it's been way too long since we've seen each other. Thank you for calling. God bless you. I miss you, man. I miss you. Love you. Matt, now your question. This actually question is specifically for... You probably ought to say hello. And use your big voice. Use your radio voice. I didn't bring that with me today. No, no, that's good. So, (laughs) hi, Lauren. Hey, Finley, if you're listening. Ari. Um, My question for you, uh, Pastor Gino, is um, if you could restate something you said during the Q&A here, I thought it was really profound. Um, and it was basically, uh, the question, if we got to the root of it was people that are, um, basically stuck in fear Mm -hmm. and you told us about love and fear and what the opposite of love truly is and how we can minister to those people with that knowledge. Right. It, it, when the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's fear. Remember, love, if we, if we were to boil love down to its central ingredient, greater love hath no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. In other words, when the Bible says God is love, in a very real sense, it speaks of his sacrificial nature, that there is a God who sacrifices. And so what, what I basically said was love voluntarily sacrifices. The essence of fear is loss. I could lose my job. I could lose my wife. I could lose my health. I could lose my future. So the essence of lo- of fear is loss. I could lose something. So why does perfect love or love made perfect cast out fear? Because love, see, let me put it a different way. Fear means you involuntarily have to give up something. Love means you voluntarily give up something. In other words, love says, I choose not to have something in order for you to have it. And so the power of love, in a sacrificial sense, makes fear go away. You don't ever have to be afraid of losing something (laughs) that never belonged to you. My life is not my own, Paul said. I'm bought with a price. This is why Paul in the New Testament glows. And so that's how I I guess I would answer it briefly. I love that concept. Mark? Yes, Pastor, not to split hairs, but the question I have concerns the status of a woman co-pastoring a church. Is that biblical? And if not, why? Well, Mark, we and, and to follow up, we, we had questions about women being pastors in the Q and A here at the retreat. Um, a co-pastor is still a pastor. Just just the title pastor puts this woman in a position of authority over men. Uh, and in First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men." in, the, in the, the setting of the church. The church belongs to Jesus. He makes the rules. It's our responsibility to follow those rules. It's his house. When people come to your house, you, you have expectations. They meet those expectations or they're unwelcome guests. Well, in Jesus' church, it's his. We have to do what he says. The idea of a co-pastor doesn't soften the idea. There's still a woman who is in a position of authority over men and is teaching the word, pastor, co-pastor, it doesn't make any difference. So I think that the churches that establish their pastors that establish their wives as co-pastors, um, I think they're, they're, they're placating the church culture, maybe even placating the wife, I don't know, but, but they're out of order. And the context of First Timothy chapter 2, of course, is order in the church. You know, yeah, you when you, yeah, when you quoted First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And this is Paul's words. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. That word has to be carefully thought about in its context. 
When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, it can't mean teach anyone under any circumstance because women are elsewhere told to instruct others and certainly children. So the key concept becomes teach and have authority. And this is why I believe that the prohibition, if you will, that comes from Paul the Apostle is that women cannot occupy the office of the teaching elder of the church. So this precludes women from serving as pastors. Now, again, when I use the term pastor, I mean the ruling elder of the church. I do not mean a person who functions in pastoral roles, like a woman who goes to the hospital and prays with someone, or a woman who teaches a Bible study, or a woman who teaches in a college or a university, or a woman, and just fill in the blank with whatever it is you want. Now, there's a lot of people who have objected to that, but what I would point out is that this is Paul the Apostle proclaiming the prohibition. And there's been many objections. One objection has been that women teaching in, in, in the first century was, was, well, it was typically because they were uneducated and that's why the prohibition takes place. Nothing could be further from the truth. When Jesus picked the 12 apostles, he could have picked anyone he wanted. He, and to say that Jesus just simply succumbed to a cultural prohibition, I think would be inappropriate. And some people would say, well, Ephesus was known for its temple to Artemis, where women uh, were the authorities in that branch of paganism. And so the theory goes that Paul is reacting against the female-led customs of the Ephesian idolaters, and it's a cultural construct that doesn't apply to us. A third objection is that Paul was only referring to husbands and wives, not women and men in general. But the Greek word for woman and man in 1 Timothy chapter 2 could refer to husbands and wives. However, the basic meaning of the word is broader. And yet another objection to this interpretation is women in leadership, and they point to Miriam, uh, Deborah, and Huldah. Again, the Bible doesn't have a prohibition of women in leadership, but rather in occupying the office of the ruling elder. And so, and Paul gives a reason. He literally appeals to Adam and Eve in his justification for that prohibition. And so, again, there are people who, who will say, well, I wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Gina, one of the, one of the problems, we, hermeneutic is, is simple. Because of the reference to Genesis, there's your foundational principle. Paul is establishing that this is not cultural. He even says, these are the rules I lay down in all, For the, all churches. the churches. And, and in, in Paul's particular case, he was very close with um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Right. And, and not only was Priscilla gifted, she appears, at least at first glance, to be more gifted in the terms of teaching than Aquila, her husband. And, um, uh, you know, they were the ones that were used to show Apollos, who turned out to be a giant in the first century church, the, 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 the fulfillment of what he was preaching. This is exactly right. Paul's argument isn't because women are less intelligent, because that, that's not true. Yeah. We've been blessed at our church. Mary, are you listening? Is my wife listening in yeah. right now? <laughs> We, we have been blessed in our church. We, we have uh, so many gifted women teachers. So the gift of teaching is to be disconnected here from the office of the teaching pastor or the person in authority. That's so that's important. the way I would put it. Women yep. aren't prohibited from teaching. Yeah. They're prohibited from occupying the position of the ruling elder. Now, I was the pastor of a church for a very long time. And when we would exercise discipline, we would have a board and we would have discipline and sometimes you could get kicked out of the church. Well, guess what? That's what I mean by a ruling elder. You're exercising authority. In your church, you can't go up to another person and just simply say, you're out of here. You know, I don't like you. I don't <laughs> like the way you treat me. There, there has to be order and discipline and authority. And so Paul is um, basically defining what constitutes spiritual authority. And so I know that this is a very difficult uh, passage and a, and a very controversial passage, but I suspect that that's the reason why Paul has said what he yeah, said. It's not very popular here in the West, to be sure. Let's go to Bulverde, Texas, and talk with Greg on line one. Greg, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hey, uh, Pastor, I just want to ask you a question about the scripture that maybe kind of clarify 
family perspective. Because uh, it kind of, to me, is almost contradictory, and I know it's not. But anyway, there's scripture where it says, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Uh, but then there's other verses that talk about, you know, Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, follow me. You know, in this life, you want a tribulation. So on one hand, he's saying, hey, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. But, you know, expect trouble. Okay, I, yeah. can, I can do that, Greg. Okay. Probably the answer to this question will go over the break, Greg. So hang on uh, during the break as well. I'll start, Gino, just by saying Jesus' Jesus's yoke is easy and light. Remember, uh, we talk about the kenosis of God in Philippians chapter 2. He veiled his deity. Jesus, Jesus took what was his and let it go, and he did it because he was thinking of you and me, and certainly we look at what Jesus went through, Gino, and there was nothing light and easy about it. But but in the will of God, Jesus was saying, this is the only place that is light and easy. And what he's doing is he's calling on us to accept his will for our life. That's the place where the power of the Spirit meets us. That's the place where we know that we're in the perfect, pleasing will of God. And that's the place he's created for us to be and prepared us to be in that place at that time. I want to get back to that on yeah, the other I, side of the break. Great. Yeah, I'm so, happy to, to address that. You can hear the music. We are 30 minutes away from the end of the program today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the word to stand on for life we are coming to you live from camp buckner from our 2021 men's retreat we're having a blast we've been blessed with pastor gino geraci from calvary chapel south denver actually from all kinds of different places <laughs> and uh, gino what i'd like you to do before we take the next question is comment on greg's question about uh, his burden and sure you know that that passage of scripture is part of a larger passage in matthew chapter 11 but in verses 28 through 30 jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light that's Jesus telling all those who are weary and burdened to come to him for rest. He isn't speaking about physical burdens. Rather, he's talking about the heavy burden of the system of works that the Pharisees had laid on the backs of the people that Jesus is offering to relieve. So later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for laying heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people. So that yoke of the Pharisees is a yoke of self-righteousness. But now Jesus is going to invite his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Now, what is that? That cross becomes a type and a symbol of the instrument of death. Anyone who picked up a, a, a cross in the morning in the Roman Empire, they were going to typically be dead by the end of the day. Nobody picked up their cross in the hopes of surviving that event. They were going to die. So it becomes a type and a picture of dying to self. But Jesus, again, is going... It, it isn't our dying to self that results in our salvation, but rather it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that results in our salvation. But again... The, the picking up of the cross becomes a type and a picture of discipleship. And so, yes, what I would say is that this isn't a contradiction. This is a paradox. What does that mean? It's when you lay two things side by side and you begin to understand how they relate to one another, how they're important to one another. So I think that yeah. that's it. And, and you know, this was, this was the, the occasion in Jerusalem um, when, when uh, Paul withstood Peter to the face. Right. He said, you're, you're putting a yoke, a burden on people's shoulders that we ourselves couldn't the bear. The Gentiles. Yeah. And, and the idea there was we, we've, it's for freedom. We've been set free. Matthew? Uh, yes, I have a question. Um, so your husband and wife, right? Obviously, when there's a situation you want to come in, and we're both on opposite sides of uh, um, and, and biblically, you can make an argument for both. 
right? And we get into prayer, and we still can't come with a definite answer. Um, more specifically, um, like if someone gets married, do you think that they should leave the home and start their own lives, or is it okay to kind of help out a young married couple before, you know, if it's like our children, or just in anything in general? Like, how would you, theologically, how would you be able to handle if we just cannot come to an agreement, even after prayer and fasting and things like that? Well, with the scarcity of details, um, <laughs> and that's what we have there. Uh, I, I mean, there there are occasions where uh, we have a young man now whose house is being built. He's going to get married in December, and um, you know he's staying with his parents, and she's staying with with her family, um, and and they've got to make other arrangements mm-hmm. until their house is built once they get married. I think the, the the principle leave and cleave is really important. Now, I'm just speaking as a pastor who's counseled um, so many, many through pre-marriage counseling and then later uh, marriage counseling. Um, uh, it, it's 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 always complicated when the children stay at home. And and here's one of the things that we need to do. I'm going to go back to the the beginning of your question, where a husband and wife. Um, the, the way we agree to things that we disagree about is to find out what the Bible says. And in this particular case, you can go back to Genesis. For this reason, a man would leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. And of course, the same thing is true in reverse. When we make it easy for them, we're really not helping them sometimes. Now, I have no problems with helping financially or helping them out with groceries or, or, or being a supporter but I personally think, and this is my own experience, and I'll give Gino an opportunity in a moment, but, but, but I, I just think it's better for them and their unity together, to grow together, to sort of face the kinds of trials and struggles that we parents sometimes want to prevent them from having to go through, and I don't think we're, we're doing them a favor many times. Gino, what is your thought? You know, there's, it, it's a complicated issue, and I, I think one, you know, there seems to me you're talking about two different things. You're talking about how we deal with our children, but also how do we deal when we come to an impasse where, where we've searched the scriptures, we fasted and we prayed and, and, and at, at some point a decision has to be made. Well, this is one of those, the buck stops here. And, and, and as the head of the family, you need to say, I love you. Now, again, part, part of the better part of valor is sometimes you have to really think carefully and biblically about, is this a hill I want to die on? I mean, after all, I wear the pants in the family. And every morning my wife tells me which pair to put on. And so probably, probably you have to choose your battles carefully. But in the end, just like the pastor, you know, um, imagine he's got to deal with something. He seeks godly counsel. He gets the advice of a number of different people. Um, he goes to his board. He in, in, in the council, there's wisdom in the council of the multitude. But in the end, you, you're going to have to make the decision. And as the head of the family, you have to make the decision. In Africa, in the Maasai village, the kid goes out and he slays a lion. In our culture, they leave our basement. Yeah. That's how we know. Or they don't. Yeah, yeah. or they don't. <laughs> but again, I think it depends. I mean, there's so many different variables. All three of my children have come home with their wives and the grandchildren at some point or another. My, my oldest son was finishing college and stayed in our basement for a while. Then he was deployed overseas, and his wife and our grandchildren came and stayed in our basement for a while. My son gets married, and he's uh, finishing his education, and they stay in the basement for a while. My son moves back from the East Coast and stays in the basement for a while. I don't have a problem with helping our children, but to what Ron said, it becomes a point where where sometimes, again, you have to ask and answer the different question. You know, can I help them think carefully about their circumstance? Because, again, it's every parent's goal, isn't it? For their children to be self-sufficient, physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, we want self-sufficiency, and hence the leave and cleave, and and so we're trying to create an atmosphere where where that can happen. But again, sometimes our children deploy, sometimes our children are sick, sometimes there are life circumstances that we have to take into consideration, and so but the the all the while thinking is the leaving and cleaving process taking place. And then again, the unity, the unity between the husband and wife. You know, the two shall become one. 
well, which one? Are we going to be me or are we going to be you? No, that's actually not what the meaning of the text is. Yeah. Unity is based on three things, trust, respect, and affection. And as you're dealing with whatever it is you're dealing, you need to ask and answer that question. Is this helping respect, trust, and affection or hindering trust, respect, and affection? I think of unity like a pie that has those three ingredients. And all of those three ingredients need to be present for you to have that biblical picture of unity. Yeah, you know, we, we have a tendency to want things to be easy for our kids. And in making things easy for them, we're oh depriving God. them of, of having only Jesus to turn to. And, and, you know, when they look to mom and dad, mom and dad are the saviors, the rescuers. Uh, a lot of times they're going to look to Jesus last. And we want to teach them to look to Jesus first. I think that's a principle that works in almost everything that we have. We look to people for help. We want people to for advice. Uh, Gino just said there's wisdom in many counselors, but you need to be sure if they're, that they're wise counselors. Right. It's not just a bunch of voices. So the idea here is is I want my children to serve God and love Him. And if you look back on your life and the things that have caused you to grow the most in the Lord, it's typically in those times when you were desperate and you had no one to cry out to except Jesus and he showed up and, and too many of our children are not seeing the hand of God move in their life because mom and dad's hand is always there. So it's just, it just, there has to be care in, in the decisions you make. I hope that helps. Thank you, Matthew. Here's a question, Gino. How do you know God's will? If you do something you think is God's will and you're wrong, how do you handle that with your family? I repent. Yeah. <laughs> I go, oh, hey, I thought this was the will of God, and it wasn't. Well, what is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you? You know, again, when I talk about the buck stops here, I wish I could say to you that that means when you're a president of the United States, when you're the head of a household, when you're a general on, on, the, on the commanding field, does that mean that every single person in authority is always going to make the right decision? We know that that's not true. So again, what we have to ask and answer the question is, again, how do we discern the will of God in any given situation? And when we find ourselves doing something that clearly was inconsistent with the word of God and the character of God, the right response for us is to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I repent. And I'm going to try to make the best decision I can in the future. Now, as you can imagine, decisions fall into two categories, forgiving and unforgiving. There's some choices that we make that are really, really difficult to come back from. And so my encouragement to everyone is if you play this is the will of God card, you should be very, very careful. You should be very, very careful. You should be able to differentiate between based on the information I have, this seems to be the right decision based on the information I have versus this is what the Bible says about this matter. It's the will of God that you flee sexual immorality. You don't have to debate that. If a person comes to you and says, you know, is it the will of God for me to rob that liquor store? You need to be able to go, you know, the Bible says thou shalt not steal. This should be a no-brainer. There are things that are very self-evident. There are things that are less self-evident. So again, just be careful. What is the will of God? And how do you discern it? Yeah, let me add two things very quickly. One is that any man who is married to a Christian woman, to becoming one, who doesn't take his wife into partnership over the decisions is a fool. (laughs) Is it simple? Amen. I, I can't imagine making an important decision in my life without saying to Paula, the one who has always loved me, who's always and only wanted the best for me. I can't imagine saying to Paula, well, thus saith the Lord, we're going to move to Alaska. Timbuktu. Yeah. And, or Alaska's close. Burn it, Texas. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Texas. I'm just, just joking. Gino, I think you should move to Texas. I love Texas. I know you want it. I love, love, love Texas. But the idea here is partnership. Your wife is not your assistant manager. She's not your helper. She's your partner. And to make a decision that affects the whole family and not include her prayerfully, not to share your heart with her openly is, is, is an act of a fool. So here's what you do. And, and I do this. Uh, every pastor that I have, every elder that I have over the 26 years here at Calvary Chapel, every single one of them, my first board of review is Paula. 
And so I say, Paula, I'm thinking about this man and this woman. See, she knows the wives, and she's going to know if there's something going on. And she'll say, well, you know, I'm not sure they're ready. Let's pray about that. And we'll, we'll pray together. That's not me asking her for permission. That's just me accepting the counsel of the only person on this earth who, as I said, only and, and always is one of the best for me. So we don't make unilateral decisions. We make them in agreement, and then the Lord is blessed, and then if something goes wrong, you can say, well, we did our best, and we were in it together. When Paul and I came to San Antonio, um, I told her, uh, the day the Lord spoke to my heart, I know where we're going when I get out of Bible college. And she said, where? I said, San Antonio. And her response was, Texas? And I said, yes. And she said, I don't think so. That was her response. I've been saved longer blame than you. Her. Yeah, who can blame <laughs> no, her? I love Texas, by the way. But so. she, she said, she said, I've been saved longer than you. I think God would tell me. And I told her right then. I said, don't worry. We're not going anywhere until we're in full agreement. So you pray. I knew she loved the Lord. I knew she would pray. And she really, because she didn't want to come to Texas, she wrestled with this for, for a couple, three weeks. And finally, the Lord put on my heart to say, okay, well, what's the Lord saying to you? And she said, we can go. Wow. And, and I said, no, 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 we're not going like that. And, and then she broke down crying and she said, you don't understand. God's already spoken to my heart. He said that I have a godly husband, the husband that you prayed for, you can follow him. Now that's a biblical response. Something else, and I hope this takes a lot of pressure off, off all men. I've found in my life, in those gray areas where the Bible doesn't say something specifically about, if my heart is right with God, I don't have to be right in the decision I make. I hope that makes sense. I don't have to be right because God is able then to redirect my steps. And God has saved me from a lot of dumb decisions over the years here. It's simply God saying, oh, that's cute, but let's sort of turn you around and go this direction. And, uh, and you know, I've I made some decisions that, that would have bankrupted our church sure. had God not protected me. But because I wanted to honor him, I wanted what he wanted more than what I wanted, I was able to hear. Mm-hmm. In humility, yeah, we need to be able to admit I'm capable of making the wrong decision. In a way, I joke. I make the major decisions. She makes the minor decisions. No. Yeah. I make the major decisions. She makes the minor decisions. We've never made a major decision in our marriage. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's, but you, you get my point. My, my, my point is just exactly what you said. Your wife is the one who has to live with the consequences of both your good choices and your bad choices. And again, we think about Abraham who with, brings his wife Sarah down to Egypt inappropriately and then lies and then asks her to lie. So our men... Even though they're the head of the household, are they going to always make the right decision? The answer is no. He did it twice. And he did it twice. <laughs> and you're not even Abraham. So, <laughs> so, so, But you get my point. And so, again, with humility, with humility, when you come to that impasse, you should, again, be very careful that there's good reason to believe that the only way that you can honor God by going forward is making this particular decision and it will be a good one or a bad one. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there's, there's a great testimony in a man who will sit down with his family and say, I blew it. Right. I blew it. I'm sorry. I blew it. And then you, you tell your wife, I'll never make another decision whether it's your partnership. That's not without her approval, but without her partnership. And God can move the hearts of people like that. That's a good question. Thank you. See, now, Proof positive how Ron and his wife have been able to experience their 49th anniversary. You know what? It's the first 48 years that are the toughest. I just, when you get to 48, you're you're good. This one says, Gino, when I confess my sins to Jesus, I feel that at times he does not listen to me. I know he does listen, but why do I doubt? I think that sometimes we make a mistake because we make a decision based on our feelings. When the Bible says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. I think of the passage of scripture also um, where Jesus is dying on the cross. And you'll remember it says um, that, that I'm trying to think of the the specific passage where he asks the people, uh, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And and um, when I'm thinking about this, it's it, here's the idea: Is Jesus dying on the cross? Yes. Is dying on a cross painful? Yes. When he says, "Father, forgive them," does he mean it? What do you think the answer is? I think the answer is yes. yes. Is it possible to hurt terribly and forgive completely? Because the presence of pain doesn't mean the absence of forgiveness. Or the presence of a particular feeling doesn't make God's word any less true. In other words, once the Lord addresses an issue, we can literally take it to the bank. Now, there might be other... um, Because again, when the Bible says confess your sin and he's faithful and just that word confess homologeo means to say the same thing that god has to say about it you might say hey i sin but i'm hey guess what it's saturday night and i'm gonna go do that sin again if in your mind you're harboring just the next opportunity that you can sin there might be some doubt or difficult thank you for luke twenty three thirty four, 34 because um, that's the passage that i was looking for and um in Luke chapter 23:34 I'm turning there instead of putting it in my computer I'm doing it the old fashioned way and um well maybe that's not it yeah maybe it okay so it is so in in Luke 23 20, 24 um it says in verse 33 that's what I was looking for and when they had come to the place called Calvary there they crucified, and, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They divided his garments, cast lots. The, and this is what's really interesting to me. And the people stood looking on. You know, sometimes in our sin, especially when it's public, it's like gawking. I mean, it's like a car accident. If you've ever been in a car accident, everybody wants to see what's happened. So sometimes sin can be painful and shameful. But I'm going to... I'm going to suggest to you that the presence of pain, the presence of shame, and the presence of doubt does not mean the absence of forgiveness. Jesus is able to forgive in the presence of pain. And I think that what that means is we have the ability to say, you know what, my feelings are my feelings, but they're not always indicative of what's true. Yeah, one of the things that we have to do is we have to discern between appropriate and inappropriate feelings. Right. They're, they're all legitimate. They're all real. Yeah, we're not. An, an inappropriate feeling is that feeling which says, well, I know you say this, God, but I still feel this way. That's unbelief. That's doubt. Uh, and in Romans 8, 1 is a verse, another verse that we have to really not just read, but believe there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why am I feeling condemned? Well, that helps us to identify the source of the condemnation. Mm-hmm. And the source of the condemnation is the enemy. Who wants to listen to the enemy? So we got to decide. Jesus said it, so I'm going to believe it and I'm going to receive it by faith. And when you don't feel forgiven, you have to know by faith that you are simply because that's the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I think too often we give in to feelings, as Gino just mentioned, and, and uh, feelings have no place in our transactional relationship with God. It's very important that we, we understand what he said he meant, and he meant it for you. And the only, the only thing that, that we can do to, to confess, as Gino said, means to agree with God. Mm-hmm. It, it like, yeah, agree it, yeah. with what God says. Yeah. And, and that, that requires a change. So repentance is a change in direction in life, and confession requires that repentance. And if you're not repenting, well, then you haven't really made a change. I always say that anybody who's met my Jesus, Gino, has changed. You know, Ron, have you ever had a, a situation in your life where you didn't feel saved? You woke up and you go, I don't. I, I remember feeling saved. My sins were forgiven. I'm going to heaven and not hell. There's a sense of joy in the presence of God. Have you ever felt like, well, maybe I'm not saved? But again, is my salvation dependent on my feeling or is it dependent on what God has done in Christ Jesus? Yeah. Gina, we're inside now three minutes okay. for the rest of the program. Let me ask you this question. What would you tell the men who... Um, not only motivated by their feelings, but but in that decision of, of discerning, okay, who am I going to believe? I'm going to believe what God said, 
or I'm going to believe what the enemy says, or am I going to believe based on how I feel? What would you say to the man who's really struggling with overcoming his feelings? You know, one of the things that has helped me is the passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 5, where it says, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Having been in law enforcement and a chaplain for the FBI for many years, working with law enforcement agencies, in order to have a testimony, you have to have three things. You have to have a knowledge of the facts, you have to have a reputation for honesty, and you have to be willing to tell the truth. And so when it says, and this is the testimony, God knows the facts. He has a reputation for honesty. He's willing to tell the truth. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This, it's not probationary life. It's not temporal life. He's given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. It isn't in my feelings. It is in his son. And we live in a culture and a society that's very much feeling oriented. We live in a culture and a society that says how I feel about myself is the most important thing. And the Bible says, oddly enough, the most important thing about you isn't how you feel about yourself, but how God feels about you. It's the most true thing about you. That's why we have to die every day. Pick up your cross daily, Luke adds. And follow him. Gino, thank you for being here in the program. It's been a great privilege. It's an hour program. Yours is two hours, so you probably feel like you're only halfway through. No, I feel like this is easy peasy. I... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, we would love to know that you're praying. We've got another teaching tonight with Pastor Gino, followed by an afterglow where God is always speaking to people's hearts, and we'd love to know people are praying. Paula, I'd like to tell you I love you. I miss you. I can't wait to see you. Men, would you like to say hi to your wives? God bless you. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.